0: Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 98. I'll start by just giving general introduction to the psalm, and then we'll go verse by verse. It is a short psalm, only nine verses. This psalm in Hebrew is simply titled a psalm, and it is only one given that simple title. So this psalm is the only psalm that given just this simple title, a psalm with no other explanation. But as you know, the Psalms were translated with the Old Testament to the Greek language by 70 persons. And this translation is called Septuagint. Septuagint means 70. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the title is Psalm of David. It's written by David, but we don't know on which occasion David wrote this psalm. The psalm speaks about victory. We don't know which victory David is referring to. But definitely this psalm is a prophecy about the victory and the salvation of the Messiah. So prophecy about Jesus Christ, about his victory and his salvation. So this psalm, to be understood prophetically, and spiritually, of the coming of the Messiah, and the redemption of the whole world by Jesus Christ. This psalm begins and ends exactly like Psalm 96. And much of the language of the psalm is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, or from 40 to 66. You can actually, from Isaiah 40 to 66, these 27 chapters about the Messiah. That's why this psalm takes verses from here and there, or Isaiah quoted the psalm, because Isaiah came after David, not before David. Its subject is like Psalm 96. It speaks of praise to God for his work of salvation. When we reflect on the work of salvation, we praise God. And the praise here is start in Israel, then all the earth, then all creation, sea, hill, rivers, mountains. So it starts Israel, the whole world, then the whole creation. Also, there are six Psalms called enthronement Psalms. Enthronement because they speak about God as a king. This sixth psalm is 93, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99. So this is one of the six enthronement psalms. And as I said, the enthronement psalms celebrate God as king and affirm his lordship over all creation. According to St. Athanasius, this psalm is a psalm of exhortation. It exhorts us, instructs us. And also as if it is a commandment to us. And as it's clear to those who are using Agbeah right now, it is the third psalm in the ninth hour of the Agbeah. In the Agbeah because the counting is according to Subtellusion. It's 97, but in the Bible it's 98. As I told you, it's a very short psalm. So the outline from verse 1 to 3, sing a praise to God for his redemption. From 4 to 6, let all the earth declare him as king. So first Israel, then all the earth. From 7 to 9, let all nature, the creation, rejoice at his advent or at his coming. So let's start from verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The psalm here invites all men to praise God for his wonderful works. But the song here, he said, sing to the Lord a new song. Why the song should be new? Because of the remarkable nature of the marvelous things which God has done. this marvelous things is new, the salvation, new in its revelation to us. So such a new song mean had not been sung before. Why? Because the salvation and the incarnation is a mystery that was hidden from ages and generations but revealed to us in the fullness of time. That's why it is a new song. He has done marvelous things. By taking human nature, God became man. In that he, being God, became man and took flesh from a virgin. This is a marvelous thing. He has done marvelous things in the mystery of his incarnation, nativity, passion, and death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. All these things are marvelous things. In addition, all the miracles that he performed, he did in person during his earthly ministry, and also the miracles that performed by his disciples and the apostles. Also marvelous things when we think about what he did at the exodus of Israel from the land of Egypt to the Promised Land. So he brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. But if you compare what he did in his incarnation and what he did with Israel, back then he delivered only one nation from one human enemy, Egypt. And he overthrew the Egyptians in the Red Sea. But now the salvation that he has done is not only to one nation, Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. And the enemy that he cast out is not Egypt, but it is the prince of this world, Satan. St. Augustine says he conquered the world not by the sword, but by the cross. He conquered the world not by a sword, but by the cross. And he has saved the world purely by his own power. God alone cast out the prince of this world, Satan, and delivered mankind from his power. Even those who were trapped in Hades, he descended to Hades and delivered them from Hades, transferred them to the paradise of joy now we know why it is a new song and now we know what are the marvelous things but what is his right hand second part of verse 1 his right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory who is his right hand who is his holy arm the right hand or the holy arm is the person of our lord jesus christ He wrote the salvation of mankind by one instrument alone, his right hand, the only begotten Son. St. Augustine says, What is the Lord's holy arm, our Lord Jesus Christ? Hear Isaiah, who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. His holy arm then, and his own right hand is himself, Our Lord Jesus Christ is therefore the arm of God and the right hand of God. Verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of nations. So he made known his salvation and his righteousness he revealed to the sight of the nations. This salvation is... Manifested to us when God became man. So the Lord has made known his salvation. It is the manifestation of the only begotten son, the savior of mankind. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. Nations mean the non-Israelites. You know, before Christ, the world it was divided into Israel and nations. Gentiles so the nations here the non-Israelites so the redemption of the world by the Messiah which was prophesied to Israel but was not known to the Gentiles because they were worshiping idols but with the incarnation he actually revealed his righteousness to both the Jews and to the Gentiles as you remember in the gospel that we prayed in the Agbeah right now in the twelfth hour, Simeon, the priest who carried the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he say? A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. So all the marvelous things that we mentioned in verse 1 have been known in the sight of the nations. And salvation manifested to Israel. He made known and revealed to the Gentiles that mystery that was hidden from the world. And the mystery is his own justice, his own righteousness, the fulfillment of the promise. God made a promise in the past to Adam, to his children. Then he made the promise clearly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning the redemption of the human race. Saint Jerome says, observe that it is not said in the first clause that God showed, but God made known his salvation. You know, verse 2 has two parts. In the first part, God has made known his salvation. In the second part, revealed his righteousness. So Saint Jerome said in the first part, in the first clause, he did not say, God showed, but God made known his salvation. For he had shown it in mystery of all to the patriarchs. So God had shown the salvation, but in a mysterious way, to our fathers in the Old Testament. For example, Adam knew him, so did Abel, who offered him a lamb. Seth, who called on his name. Noah, who was his type saving mankind in the ark. Abraham, who offered up his son. So all these fathers, God has shown his salvation to them in a mysterious way. But with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he made known his salvation. So what was prophetically spoken of now is known. But the world had forgotten him. The Gentiles forgot him. Therefore, God the Father made the Son known to Israelites and revealed the righteousness to the Gentiles. St. Jerome continues and says, He did so with care that his nativity should not pass unnoticed, for he made it known to the shepherd by the angels, to wise men by a star. Shepherd Israelites, Wise men, Gentiles. So he revealed his salvation to both Israel and the Gentiles. Also to Zacharias and Elizabeth by Archangel Gabriel. To Simeon and Anna by the Holy Spirit. But to the Gentiles who had no previous knowledge to be called, there is no prophecies for the Gentiles. He openly showed his righteousness to them. So the psalmist gives a reason for God's having made known his salvation and revealing his justice. What is the reason? We read the reason in verse 3. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Why he revealed his salvation? And his righteousness, because he remembered his mercy and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So God promised our fathers in the Old Testament that he will save them. But this salvation was delayed for 5,500 years. Although he delayed the fulfillment of the promise, but he has remembered. But the word has remembered doesn't mean God forgets, because God cannot forget. But when we read God remembered, means what? Means he is figuratively said to remember when he does a thing after a while, as if he forgot it and now he remembers. So when God delays the fulfillment of his promises, of course for according to his economy, as if God remembered, as if he has had forgotten it, and then he remembered it. What did he remember? He remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Because the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promises of mercy. And originally, these promises of mercy and faithfulness were to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in his incarnation, these promises of mercy and faithfulness extended to the whole world, whether Israel or the Gentiles. God came to Israel in flesh. He was born among them. And to them, the first gospel was preached to Israel. However, God did not forget about the end of the earth, about the Gentiles. Because from the very beginning of his covenant, and his plan was Abraham, all the families of the earth were in his heart. As we read in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 3, in your seed, in Jesus Christ, God said to Abraham, in your seed, in Jesus Christ, all the tribes of the earth would be blessed. He did not tell him, only Israel. He said, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. Verse 4. Verse 3 ends by what? All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Since all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation, then all the earth should shout joyfully to the Lord. Verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Since the great news of God's marvelous things goes to the end of the earth, it is right for all the earth to praise God because all earth now partake of the same privileges with the Jews. That's why they ought to join with the Jews in worshiping and praising God. The giving thanks to God And exalting and singing in spiritual joy is a sign of faith. Those who believe will rejoice. Because if I believe in Jesus Christ, the magnificent of the salvation that I am granted for free, then my response is to shout joyfully to the Lord. As we read in Acts chapter 8, when Philip preached in Samaria, The people who received the word of God and who believed faith, there was great joy in that city. Acts chapter 8 and verse 8. This joy is now prophesied by the psalmist as if he was inviting and exhorting all the believers to this joy and to praise God. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. As if he is saying, all you faithful all over the world, who have been brought from the darkness of light, from darkness to light, from shadow of death to life, to the knowledge of the true God and Savior Jesus Christ, praise and thank him with a loud voice. Also, he said in verse 5, sing to the Lord with harp with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpet and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord the King. He said the body is to unite with the soul in giving praise to God. Shout, that is the body. Joyfully, that is the soul. So the body and the soul uniting together in giving thanks to God. And to perform its part vigorously with zeal. Shout means praise God with zeal, with joy. So all my heart rejoice when I praise God. Then in verse 5 and 6, the psalmist invited them to sing, exalt, play upon musical instruments. And he mentioned three musical instruments, but one of them he repeated twice. So as if he mentioned four instruments here harp, harp and the sound of a psalm, trumpet and a horn. So he mentioned harp, then he repeated harp again with the sound of a psalm, then trumpet and a horn. This musical instrument, literally the instrument most used among the Jews. However, some, some commentator like San Augustine added spiritual meaning to this instrument. For example, St. Augustine, about the harp. The harp has strings and cannot give you beautiful music if one string is not working right. So St. Augustine says the harp teaches that all our faculties, like all the strings, all parts of our conduct should be vocal with melody to God. For the harp is imperfect if even one chord be lacking. So if one chord is lacking from the harp, the harp will be imperfect. If these strings are not tuned in harmony, it will not be perfect. That's why the harp represents all the faculties of the person, all my conduct, all my behavior, everything in me, praise God. St. Augustine says, praise him, not with the voice only, but take up works, like the chords here, voice, work, that you may not only sing, but work also. He who sings and works makes melody with psaltery and upon the harp. As I told you, harp is repeated with the sound of psalm, second time. Because contemplation and prayer, that sound of psalm, in addition to active virtue, which is the harp, are essential to the full development of spiritual life and joy. So the harp means the work, and the psalm means contemplation and prayer. So as you do good works, you need to have time for contemplation and prayer. What about the trumpet? You know, in order to make the trumpet, they bring this long trumpet and they beat it out and form it with hammer, with many blows of hammer to stretch it until it produces the sweet sound, the required sound. And by hammering it, it gets stronger. This actually represents patience in bearing all trials and tribulations. So the trumpet means how we endure trials and tribulations patiently. What about the horn? The horn usually it rises above the flesh. So the horn, he said, because it has surpassed the flesh, he who wishes to be a horn trumpet, let him overcome the flesh. Let him surpass the desires. Let him conquer the loss of the flesh. So so the horn means conquering the lusts and the desires of the flesh. Praising God with a horn means rise above the flesh, chastising the body by fasting and watching, by bringing it, the body, under the subjection to the spirit. And he concluded verse 6 by saying, Shout joyfully before the Lord, the king. So here the image is like a procession, processional march with music and singing to greet the king as he returned from victory and coronation. Be sure to play on all the instrument the moment the great king who is Lord of all shall have made his appearance. St. Augustine says, Brethren, do not reproach brethren whom the mercy of God had not yet converted. If you see somebody not converted yet to Christianity, don't reproach him. Rather, pray for him. If you reproach him, this is not a trumpet which pleases the ears of God. Also, the trumpet of boastfulness, of pride and arrogance, makes the war, the spiritual warfare, fruitless. Let the horny trumpet raise your courage against the devil. Let not the fleshly trumpet raise your pride against your brother. Make a joyful noise in the sight of the Lord the King. I told you, 1 to 3 he spoke about Israel, 4 to 6, the whole world. From 7, he calls the whole nature. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all its fullness. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. The musical instrument mentioned in previous verses 5 and 6 were not the only voices to give God the praise that he deserved. But now the sea itself is called to add its roar to the sound of praise. So the psalmist calls not only on the whole earth, but on all its parts separately to praise and sing to God. He calls the nature, the creation, which had been groaning in pain and awaiting the Savior, because the nature were cursed with the fall of Adam and Eve. So he is calling all the nature to magnify the hymn of triumph in honor of Almighty God. According to St. Jerome, the sea is like the law of Old Testament, which was bitter, but now made sweet. So by the wood of the cross, the bitterness of the law became sweet. As we say, you have turned punishment into salvation by the wood of the cross. Also, St. Augustine says, Brethren, when the apostles were preaching the truth, usually rivers, because rivers are sweet water, call, represent the apostles, or the servant of God. Sea, because it's salty water and has storms, represent the world and the persecutions. So St. Augustine said, when the apostles, the rivers, were preaching the truth, the sea was stirred up, its waves arose, tempest increased, persecution of the church took place. Also, in verse 8, rivers and hills are brought into the worship team with their joyful sound. St. Jerome arguing against the literalism of the Jewish interpretation, When he said, let the river clap their hands. So he said, definitely he is not speaking about the river. Because the river has no hands. And they cannot clap. So who are the rivers? So Saint Jerome is saying, Clapping the hand is inapplicable in any strict sense to the river. So he said, let the river clap their hand. Has a spiritual interpretation. As I told you who are the, the rivers the apostles the servant of god the saints of various decrees of, of holiness who all alike flow like rivers from the lord himself the lord is the fountain of living waters and his servants are flowing from him so they are rivers clapping their hands because they work for god we do our work by our hands So clapping hands because they work for God and are not content with talking about Him. They are not just preaching and speaking about Him, but working also, since He is best served and praised with the hand, not with the voice, by good works, not only by speaking about Him. What are the hills? Now understood sea, rivers, what are the hills? St. Augustine said, hell means the elite, but there are good hells and wicked hells. The good hells, the spiritual greatness, when a person is full of virtues, he's great in spirituality. But the wicked hells are the arrogant, the prideful. And when the Lord comes to judge the earth, some of the elite rejoice, these are the good but others will become terrified. These are the prideful. The strong and deep praise described in this psalm, the praise in which Israel, Gentiles, the whole earth, the whole nature, participate, is not only for the marvelous things God has done, but for another thing. What other thing? It's verse 9. For he is coming to judge the earth, with righteousness he shall judge the world and the people with equity. Usually the thought of judgment make many people terrified. But here the psalmist is saying, sing to God and praise him because the Lord is coming to judge the world. How the thought of judgment make us happy, rejo- joyful, praising God and singing melodies for him. So this praise is for the work of judgment that he is about to do. Because his righteous rule and reign will be a relief for all creation. All creation that suffered from persecution, that suffer from oppression. When God comes to judge the world and rule with righteousness, it will be relief to all of them. Those who suffered under sin and under the rebellion of mankind will be relieved with the coming of God. That's why it's a joyful thought when you think about finally God is coming to judge the world. Maybe people who remember what happened in Egypt during the revolution when there was chaos, everybody was scared, everybody was from the insecurity and lack of peace. But when finally there was a strong government, a strong rule, everybody became happy and, and joyful. So when God, the, the absolute righteousness, comes to rule the world, those who are persecuted, those who suffered because of the weakness of mankind, they will be happy. This psalm actually ends exactly like Psalm 96. With the exception, the last word in Psalm 96 is truth. But here, the last word is equity. So the last verse in Psalm 96, he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the people with truth. But here he replaced the word truth with the word equity. The word equity, it's a word of hope and of fear. Both hope and fear. Hope because the oppressed will find an advocate in their judge against all the power planned against them. As it is written, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Isaiah 11 verse 4. But also equity is a word of fear for the unrighteous, for the ungodly. Because if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who shall stand? St. Augustine says, But behold, he has not yet come. God did not yet come to judge the world We are waiting for him. What need is there, they should tremble. What you need to do in order not to tremble on the day of his coming? Let them mend their ways and rejoice. Let them repent and rejoice. It is in your power in what way you will to await the coming of Christ. So he said, by what you are doing now, you will wait his coming either in joy or in fear. For this reason, he delays to come. Why God is delaying to come? To give us opportunity to repent. That when he comes, he may not condemn you. Lo, no, he has not yet come. He is in heaven. You on earth. He delays his coming. Do not you delay wisdom. Do not delay wisdom by choosing to repent. His coming is hard to the heart of heart. If my heart is hardened, then his coming will be hard to me, but soft to the pious. See therefore, even now what you are. If hard of heart, If I examine myself and I find my heart is hardened, you can soften your heart. And if you are soft, if your heart is softened, even now rejoice that He will come. For you are a Christian. Yes, you say in the Lord's Prayer, I believe that you pray and say, Thy kingdom come. All of us, we pray, Thy kingdom come. Which means you desire His kingdom to come so of whose coming you are afraid how you desire his coming and you are afraid of his coming that's why Saint augustine concluded by saying amend your ways mend your way that your prayer will not be against yourself because if i'm saying thy kingdom come but i am living ungodly life then my prayer will be against me because he will come to judge the world in righteousness and give each one according to his deeds. This concludes Psalm 9.8. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart, and we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.